0: Well, good morning. Y'all ready for this? <laughs> I'd like to shift our focus this morning to the imminent activity of the soul as we return to the subject of free will. We've already prayed this morning, so uh, we'll go ahead and, and jump right into the material. We've had occasion so far uh, yesterday to consider the, the radical contingency and freedom of man's power of choice. And we've considered something in uh, of its uh, relation to uh, the more independent and absolute con- contingency and freedom of the divine will. And we've considered something as well of the, of the concurrence of these two orders of, of willing, of causality, the human and the divine, the first order of causality and the second order of causality. Uh, we've also had occasion to uh, shift our focus a little bit more directly to the human part of the equation as we've considered the overview of, of faculty psychology, the, the, the uh, powers of, of the soul, as it were. And now we want to continue that trajectory in really in the next two lectures uh, which seek to look more closely at the imminent activities of the soul. In other words, the internal order of the soul and the relationship between the intellect and the will, the cognitive faculty and the uh, appetitive um, faculty uh, as it were, knowing and willing as it relates to the very act of free choice. The focus of this lecture is set upon the particular view of Thomas Aquinas. We can ask the question, why Thomas? Why focus on Thomas? Uh, Thomas as a 13th century uh, century theologian is an important medieval source for Reformation and post-Reformation theology and uh, no less a primary source for the reformed doctrine of free will. And I hope to show that Thomas's view is uh, perhaps a little more nuanced than is often portrayed. And I'll argue that, I'll argue at the conclusion that uh, of the next lecture in particular, that he does not fit into uh, some of the historical trajectories. So he, he does not fit perfectly into, let's say intellectualism or voluntarism. Uh, intellectualism is a historical view, uh, viewpoint that maintains that the will is a passive rather than an active power, a passive power that slavishly de- is determined by the judgment of the intellect. Whereas on the other side of the pendulum, voluntarism maintains that the will is an active power that is able it is able to act independently and even contrary to the judgment of the intellect. Thomas, however, presents what uh, one author refers to as a middle way, which finds its way to a greater or lesser extent into our own tradition. At least this will be my argument. So you may love Thomas or you may hate Thomas as people tend to do these days but he deserves to be understood on his own terms. And I think doing so will help us to understand and appreciate something of our own confessional heritage. So I've titled this lecture, Thomas on Free Choice. In his Summa, Thomas unequivocally writes, man has free will, otherwise counsel, exhortations, commands, prohibitions, rewards, and punishments would be in vain. So man must have free will, he's saying, otherwise we would not be responsible and accountable for our actions, for good or ill, and moral persuasion, counsels, exhortations, and the like would be meaningless. Man must have free will. The question has never been whether man has free will, but how it is to be understood and so listen to Thomas as he responds to this question how is it to be understood he says the proper act of free will is choice for we say that we have a free will because we can take one thing while refusing another and this is choice this is to choose he says Therefore, we must consider the nature of free will by considering the nature of choice. Now, two things concur in choice. One on the part of the cognitive power, the other on the part of the appetitive power, the the desire, the will. So freedom consists in the power of free choice, which is the the potency or the ability, the power to choose spontaneously and contingently between alternatives. And according to Thomas, the very act of choosing is itself a joint act of both the intellect and the will, the soul's cognitive power and the appetitive power, the will. It is precisely in this way that we see Thomas's unique contribution. Again, the very act of choosing is itself a joint act of the intellect and the will. You, you gotta hang on to that. That's the, that's the main uh, thesis here. A joint act of the intellect and the will of the soul's cognitive power and its appetitive power. So the question becomes if if freedom consists in the power of choosing, and choosing itself consists in a joint act of both faculties, intellect and will. The question is, what is the nature and the order of the relationship between the intellect and the will in the very act of choosing? This is what we're we're seeking to focus upon this morning. Let's just review for a moment our definition of free choice, of free will, and uh, even begin to expand upon it a little bit. So again, as we said yesterday, according to our confession, God has bestowed upon the will of man a natural liberty, our confession says, a natural liberty and the power of acting upon choice that we said consists of two things, spontaneity and contingency. In other words, freedom requires the power of choosing and or of refusing of one's own accord, which requires the will's spontaneity of act and its contingency of its chosen course of action. So first, just remembering these two things, the spontaneity of its act, in other words, the will is able to elicit its own act. It is able to spontaneously move itself, as our confession even says, that it be not forced. And the idea here is that it is able to exercise its power of choice voluntarily, and in a way that is free from, remember, free from the necessity of coercion or coaction. Okay, secondly, the contingency of its chosen course of action. In other words, the will is able to choose between alternatives, it's able to act contingently, as our confession says, that it be not by any necessity of nature determined to only one effect at the moment of its choosing. And this requires that there is simultaneously present within the human will a a resident potency to opposite effects, the ability to will, not will, or will otherwise than it has. And as we consider what sort of relation must exist then between the intellect and the will, in order for the will to retain this power to choose between alternatives, we may now expand upon our definition of free choice to uh, include four things. So if you're taking notes, four things. First, the field of action, we're talking about the will, so we're talking about operation, practice, practical, uh, outworking action. The field of action must entail more than one possibility. This is sort of just stating the obvious of the things that need to be included here the field of action must entail more than one possibility, wherein a choice, right? A choice between alternatives is made possible. We are talking about free choice. Secondly, in order to have alternatives to choose between, there must be an intellect that is simultaneously able to know a thing and its opposite. It's able to reason and deliberate about the desirability of alternatives, of both alternatives. Thirdly, in order to freely and contingently choose between alternatives as they are presented by the intellect, there must be a will that is not by any necessity of nature passively or or automatically determined to one course of action by the judgment of the intellect. And so fourthly, that sort of contingency of the will, such contingency therefore presupposes that the will is an active potency that is to some degree able to move itself or to act spontaneously of its own accord. Okay, the first of these, if you were taking notes, the first of these we've already considered in the first lecture or or was the second lecture. Um, The last of these we'll explore further in the next lecture, uh, though it's touched upon here as well. Uh, Presently, our primary interest is in the second and third consideration. It is upon the interdependence and the order of relations within the soul between the acts of the intellect and of the will, or, or more precisely, the relationship between reason and free will so consider with me how Thomas uh, very helpfully develops these ideas this relationship and we can we can proceed uh, to consider Thomas and his understanding his view we'll we'll look at the intellect first Uh, then we'll look at the will his understanding of the will and then we'll bring it together and uh, consider the relationship between the intellect and the will so consider with me then in the first place the rational intellect the principle for thomas the principal source of the will's freedom the principal source of the will's freedom the rational intellect I will eventually try to show here that that Thomas describes free choice as a joint act of the intellect and the will, but he principally grounds the rational freedom of the will in the intellect's freedom to possess multiple and contrary forms of things, and therefore its ability to present the will with alternatives to choose from. That's a mouthful. we'll we'll, we'll try to unpack that in the rest of this section. But there there is an assumption that is at work here. The assumption is this, that only actions that proceed from reason can be free actions, which principally stands in contrast then in opposition to those kinds of actions that proceed according to, as we talked about yesterday, according to a necessity of nature. And it was especially a passage in the works of Aristotle that provided the Christian tradition with the, the, the rationale, the rationale for how reason in particular frees the will to act contingently freely without, any, uh, without being constrained by a necessity of nature. And so they were picking up ideas in, in Aristotle and putting them to good theological and anthropological use. This, this, this section is uh, perhaps a little bit abstract um, and a little bit difficult, but bear with me. Uh, I think it'll, it'll, it'll come to a point of understanding and, um, and bear fruit and then we'll, we'll elaborate on it uh, even in the next lecture. So we're building upon these ideas and hopefully they'll settle in our, in our minds and our understandings. The metaphysical principle at work here in this distinction between um, uh, the acts of rational, free and rational creatures and uh, those that are constrained by the necessity of nature. The, the metaphysical principle at work here is this, that the substantial form of a thing, okay, that's abstract, compl- think in terms of the nature of a thing, what it is, what a thing is. Think in terms of its essence, okay the substantial form of a thing operates as its intrinsic principle of motion. In other words, a thing does what it does. It acts the way that it does because of what it is, right? Because of its form, because of its nature. So, for instance, in non-rational creatures, their form always inseparably exist together in their matter, and so they are unable to possess contrary forms. In other words, simply put, something cannot be A and not A at the same time. And so because non-rational creatures can only possess one form, one nature, they're only capable of acting a certain way and they are determined therefore by a necessity of their nature to only one course of action within a set of circumstances. What is hot necessarily heats. What is cold necessarily cools and, and so on. And, and what is hot cannot cool without violating its nature, and what is cold cannot heat without violating its nature. By way of contrast, rational beings are capable of, of intellectually and conceptually abstracting abstracting the natural form of things so as to possess the form of things in their mind, in, in the intellect, without violating uh, the nature um, of the knower of the intellect or of the thing that is being known. And so th- through this process of reasoning then and comparing the form of things, the nature of things and its opposite, the rational intellect exercises its own active potency, power for simultaneously knowing opposites, A and not A, or you put this more tangibly, the intellect is able to know simultaneously light and darkness because darkness is simply the privation of light. And so in knowing the nature and the form of one, reason is able to apprehend the form of the other. And so for Thomas, reason's ability, the intellect's ability to simultaneously know opposites, a thing and its opposite as alternative possibilities existing in the mind It provides the the formal cause whereby the free will may be informed and it may be moved in order to move itself. Listen to Thomas. He says, by the intellect, the will is moved with respect to the object formally presented to it. Whereas the will is also moved by itself as to the exercise of its own act. We'll elaborate on this more in a moment, but the will is enabled to freely exercise its own power of choice. It is able to exercise its own power of choice precisely because the rational intellect is capable of presenting to it alternative forms from which to form its choice. Thomas explains, the root of liberty, the root of freedom is in the will as the subject thereof, but it is in the reason as its formal cause for the will can tend freely toward various objects precisely because the reason can have various perceptions of good. Hence, philosophers define the free will as being a free judgment arising from reason, implying that reason is the root of liberty. Thomas maintains, that because the act of comparing opposites is an act of reason, the freedom of the will is principally and formally made possible by the intellect. The freedom of the will is principally and formally made possible by the freedom of the intellect. And therefore, even the actual power to choose, which is the act of the, 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 the will, the actual power to choose between opposites, again, properly resides in the will, but nevertheless is formally grounded in the particular, its particular relation to the intellect. A certain sort of dependence upon the intellect. We'll work that out more in a moment. So in this way, Thomas principally grounds the volitional freedom of the will upon the intellect's freedom to simultaneously possess within itself multiple and even contrary forms of things. That is, multiple and even contrary principles of motion. And yet, Thomas maintains that the free will is not merely a passive participant in this relation, as if simply determined by the intellect. But before we can see how this is worked out for Thomas in its total, we need to consider the will now. We need to consider a twofold distinction that he makes with regard to the will itself. So we've looked at the rational intellect. Now let's look particularly at the will, the rational appetite, a twofold distinction, and then we'll we'll try to bring it together. Okay, Thomas makes, makes a distinction. He makes a distinction within one and the same volitional power, one and the same faculty of the will or rational appetite of the rational soul. The distinction is between the will's, what he calls the will's natural volition and the will's deliberate or particularly rational volition. And when you read Thomas when, when, w- in context where this distinction is particularly in view, he sometimes simply refers to the will's natural volition as will with respect to its essential n- nature. And when he's speaking about the will's deliberate volition, he often refers to it specifically as free will with respect to its power of free choice. So you have this distinction in Thomas between within one and the same power, one and the same faculty of the will, between that which is natural and that which is deliberate will and free will. And it may be pointed out that it may be pointed out that there are three appetitive tendencies in creatures. We may, we can speak about three types of appetites or tendencies within creatures, um, all of which are found in, the, in one way or another in the rational creature. So consider these three things. First, and, and mo- most basic, is the natural desire or tendency that is inherent to the very nature of a thing. Um, this doesn't describe a will in the proper sense of the word, um, and certainly not free will, but we can, we can speak loosely, we can speak broadly, for instance, of a heavy, of a heavy object's natural desire, right? To what? Uh, 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 what does it desire? It, it, it desires to fall. This is what a, natural, a heavy object naturally does. So we can speak about a heavy object's natural desire to fall downward. Or you could speak about a plant's natural desire to take in nutrients. It's not a will per se, um, and it's certainly not a free will. The second distinction, sort of ramping it up a little bit, has to do with the tendencies belonging to the sensitive nature of living things. So um, those that have the senses, the five senses. The eye, for instance, tends toward its particular object and the ear toward its particular object right the, the eye by the eye the animal desires to see what may be seen and by the ear the animal desires to hear what may be heard but this again is not free will because such acts still proceed from a necessity of nature because unless impeded unless something is 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 is, obstructs the, the, um, the eye or the ear, unless impeded, the eye cannot not see what is impressed upon it. The ear cannot not hear what sound vibrates upon the eardrum. It, it still acts according to a necessity of nature. And then there is, the third sort of desire and the tendency that pertains exclusively to rational creatures, the sort that follows deliberation, the sort that is free from the necessity of nature and even has a potency for opposite effects. This of course is the free will, the rational appetite of men and of angels. However, this does not mean that the will of man does not also have a certain nature. According to Thomas, it would be wrong to confine our idea of nature to the lower appetites of the soul or to the irrational creatures. The fact is that every created power has a basic tendency, a nature to be attracted by its appropriate object. And this inherent tendency manifests then its particular nature. Again, the nature of the eye is to see and therefore it has a natural desire for light because light is that by which we see. And similarly, we can say that the intellect has a natural desire for truth on account of which a thing may be known. And even the will Thomas says, must have a natural desire for goodness on account of which a thing is desirable. Therefore, even the will, Thomas says, as will, as a will, must possess a nature and a natural volition, which is itself a natural desire for goodness in general. This does not mean that the will of man necessarily latches on to every good thing that, that uh, is presented to it by the intellect, as we'll come to see in a moment, but it does mean this. It means that without violating its own nature as a will, it cannot desire anything except it first be perceived as good in some way. And so even of the will of man, we may say the will as a natural volition, as a will, that it necessarily, even by a necessity of nature, desires only that which may be perceived under some aspect of goodness in general. I say perceived as good, um what we perceive as good, particularly in our sinful state, is not always uh, what it seems to be. And if this were all that we could say, or all that Thomas says about the will, then surely it would be no less free from the necessity of nature than the so-called desires of the brute beasts. So... Thomas makes a further distinction here. And we can pose this as a question. <clears throat> if, if by a natural inclination or instinct or instinct, if the will is ordered to goodness, how is it not intrinsically compelled and passively determined to will every good thing presented to it by the intellect? You see the question? If it is determined in some way, if it is determined to goodness, to the good, how is it not then, by nature, how is it then not intrinsically compelled and passively determined to will every good thing presented to it by the intellect. How how does this not remove the role of of choice between opposites and alternatives? Thomas notes that the same, actually the same question may be posed of the intellect. He says, he asks the question, "Does, does the truth of a thing intrinsically compel the intellect to give its assent? See, Scotus, for instance, fears that it does, which is why he will, for all intents and purposes, reject the notion that the will has a nature at all or that the will has a natural desire as such. And Scotus will even refuse, uh, will even refer to the will as the only rational power of the soul, which ought to ring a little strange to us, but we'll work it out in the next hour. Thomas, however, makes further distinctions here. Thomas makes a further distinction with regard to both the intellect and the will, and he draws an analogy between them. Here's the analogy. Goodness, generally conceived, stands in relation to the will the way that first principles stand in relation to the intellect. Whereas particular goods, relate to the freedom of the will, the way that particular rational conclusions or deductions that are derived from first principles relates to the intellect. Again, it's a mouthful. There is a distinction to be had, he is saying, between the will, a a, a distinction to be had within the will that parallels a distinction to be made within the intellect. So there's, essentially what he's doing is he's saying there is will and free will just as there is intellect and reason. So keep those four things in your mind. Intellect and reason is to the will and free will. So again, goodness generally conceived stands in relation to the will the way the first principles stand in relation to the intellect, whereas particular goods relate to the freedom of the will or the free will the way that particular rational conclusions and deductions, reason, uh, derived from first principles relates to the intellect. Let's work this out. Consider first what Thomas is proposing with regard to the intellect. A first principle, right, a first principle is a self-evident proposition that is known to be true without any need of additional proof or reasoning or argumentation. And as it regards the simple apprehension of such first principles of knowledge upon which all rational knowledge is built, he is saying that the intellect is powerless to refuse its assent without acting utterly contrary to its nature, which is to apprehend truth. So simple, once you understand that a bachelor by definition, right? That a bachelor refers to an unmarried man, you cannot not assent to the truth of the principle that all bachelors are unmarried men, right? It's self-evident. It doesn't need reasoning. It doesn't need argumentation. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a self-evident axiom. It's a first principle upon which you can then reason particular conclusions and deductions so he says you cannot not assent your intellect cannot not assent to that if you just simply understand the meaning of the words in the proposition but in the pursuit of particular knowledge for instance that this particular man is a bachelor the intellect does not stop with the simple apprehension of first principles. Rather, what it does is it seeks to make particular, ra- it seeks to reason, reason, and it seeks to make particular rational inferences that, that are deduced, conclusions that are deduced from those principles. The conclusions of which the intellect, he says, is not compelled or coerced to give its assent. It's free. It is free, he says, to give its assent or not give its assent, depending upon the logical appeal of those inferences of that reasoning at any given moment. Because he's recognizing that some inferences may, may be apprehended, some, some reasoning and conclusions may be apprehended more clearly and persuasively than others. So it is possible for two people to reason different, reason to different particular conclusions, and especially when it comes to practical matters. Now, <clears throat> consider the parallel he is drawing with regard to the will. So the intellect is ordered by nature, by a necessity of nature to apprehend uh, an assent to first principles of knowledge, but it is free with regard to assenting or or not assenting, giving assent to uh, particular reasoning and conclusions drawn from reasoning. Consider the parallel that he's drawing with regard to the will. Because man's end, chief end of man, is ordered to the good, Man's will, as will, he says, is naturally ordered to goodness in general, to the good. Just like how the intellect, as intellect, is ordered to self-evident truth of first principles. The will is naturally inclined to goodness, just as man naturally desires his own happiness and cannot do otherwise than to pursue his own happiness, at least insofar as he perceives it. Thomas refers to this as the will's natural volition, the will as will, as a will. But just as the intellect is free to give or not give its assent to the particular conclusions and the logical deductions that reason draws from those first principles, so also the will, as free will, is free to adhere or not adhere to the various particular goods that are presented to it at any given moment. Why? The reason is simple, at least we can say, once it's grasped, you see it's fairly simple. It is this, because although goodness in general or goodness itself, although goodness is man's end and the will is ordered as such to man's end, to the good, no particular good within the order of of creation fulfills that end. Every created thing, every good thing that God has created, is not goodness itself, right? Every created thing is merely alternative, limited and imperfect means unto that end. God and the glory of God, are good in God. And therefore, whatever particular good is presented by the intellect to the will as good, are insufficient to determine the will to any particular, right, any particular thing. Whatsoever options are set or alternatives are set before the will are set before it according to some perception of goodness, but anything short of God himself, who is goodness itself, can only be perceived, can also be perceived as a privation of goodness. In other words, they are always just partial and imperfect participations in goodness, leaving the intellect free in its practical judgment and the will free in its particular course of action, as, as one imperfect means is compared to another imperfect means. Thomas refers to this as the will's deliberate, because it follows from reason, deliberate volition, or the will as free will, because it proceeds freely on the basis of reason's deliberation. Whereas the will as will, its natural volition, is ordered to goodness in general as as unto man's ultimate end, the will as free will or deliberative or deliberate volition is free to will or not will, and, and if it wills, it is open with respect to the particular means unto that ultimate end to which it's ordered. And so he says this, Thomas says this, In regard to its object, the will is undetermined as to the means to the end, though not as to the end itself, as has been been said. This is so because there are many ways of reaching the last end, and for different people, different ways prove suitable. And as such no particular created good can compel the will in and of itself for the will is free to choose at any given moment between alternative means to reach its ultimate end. And so according to Thomas, just as the intellect naturally desires truth itself, but is not thereby determined to any particular rational conclusion or deduction, so also the will naturally desires goodness in general, but is not thereby determined by a necessity of nature to any particular created good at any given moment. And so he makes a twofold distinction with respect to both the intellect and the will, and yet these are not two intellects or two wills. Listen to how he puts it. As the intellect is to reason, this is an analogy, right? As the intellect is to reason, so the will is to free will. But it belongs to the same power both to understand and to reason. Therefore, it belongs also to the same power to will and to choose. And on this account, the will and the free will are not two powers but one. In other words there are two distinct impulses, if I can put it that way, in one and the same faculty of volition, the one natural, which regards um, the general end of of our action, and the other deliberate, which regards the will's liberty to choose between particular means for the sake of achieving man's ultimate end. So as the intellect is to reason, so will is to free will. Okay, if, if, I, haven't, if I haven't lost you, um, let's bring this together now. So the relation of intellect and the will. Here we are looking at, more particularly, the joint act of free choice. We must bear in mind that no created thing can move itself in the ultimate sense. Hence the, the familiar principle, whatever is moved has been set in motion by another. And so even though Thomas will say that the will freely moves itself, in other words, it has within itself its own, a principle of its own motion. He also affirms that in another regard, it must first be set in motion by another. It must first be set in motion by the intellect. So there is a certain priority to the intellect. Nothing is its own cause, absolutely speaking. But more to the point, all of our appetites are cognitively determined in some way. Our sensitive appetites desire sensitive goods that are known known by the senses. And our rational ap- appetites, or our rational desires, desire rational goods that are known by the intellect. They're known to be good and to be desirable. This means that our free and rational desires must be grounded in intellectual apprehensions, in the act of the intellect. As it regards the particulars, particular choices and alternatives and so on, as it regards particulars, the will is blind. We heard this already with regard to faculty psychology, the will is, I think it was a brockle that said it, maybe, but the will is blind. The will does not know what particular, thinking blind in terms of metaphor, of knowledge, right? The will does not know what particular thing it desires until the intellect sets before it those things, which in that moment, it judges to be desirable. And even more to the point, Thomas maintains that the free will, in the act of choosing one particular as as opposed to another, the will always follows the direction of the last practical judgment of the intellect concerning what ought to be done. Again, the free will cannot choose contrary to the last judgment or the last rational insight of the practical intellect regarding what is to be done. This raises an obvious question. In the end, does the intellect therefore compel the will or determine it to one particular course of action such that it cannot will, not will, or will otherwise? And Thomas's answer to this is no we've already said that for Thomas free will is an active power that is able to move itself of its own accord even even if it must be formally set in motion by the rational intellect it it moves the intellect moves the will to move itself Thomas says and yet we've also said that in the end in the very active choice when all deliberation is done, that the will will always follow the last and final judgment of the practical intellect. So how does Thomas put these things together? In brief, Thomas sees a mutual intertwined relation of dependence between the intellect and the will that that comes sweetly together in the joint act in which a choice is being made. We can state this in this way. In the act of choice itself, not thinking in terms of all the deliberation necessarily leading up to it, but in the the act in which the the will adheres to uh, a direction and judgment of the intellect and a choice is being made. So in the act of choice itself, the free will is determined by the last practical judgment of the intellect. And the last judgment of the practical intellect is itself simultaneously determined to be the last judgment by the free decision of the will. Again, a mouthful, right? But um, let's work it out a little bit. Because really herein is the genius of Thomas's view consider the mutual relation of dependence that is at play here again one author uh, uses this analogy of uh, this analogy that we've heard he remarks that the intellect is like a paralytic so th- th- think think of intellect and will the intellect is like a paralytic who can see can know it can see but not walk the will is like a blind man who can walk but not see. You see the mutual dependence then. The will needs the intellect to show it the desirability of the alternatives at hand, and therefore supply it with the potential motives for desiring each. On the other hand, the intellect needs the will in order to determine where it should concentrate its rational energies, and in the end, to determine its last and final judgment in which the act of choice is simultaneously made. And so without the deliberate volition of the will, the intellect could not actually make its judgments practical. And without the rational insight of the intellect, the will would not know the desirability of its objects. Again, Thomas writes, by the will excuse me by the intellect the will is moved with respect to the object formally presented to it whereas the will is also moved by itself as to the exercise of its act and so here here the intellect is primary for Thomas the intellect is primary because whereas the will is moved in relation to the good It is within reason's power alone to apprehend what is formally good in the particular. And therefore the intellect must inform the will, arousing it to its own motion, arousing its own principle of motion. The will then, having now been set in motion, commands the so-called practical intellect, the intellect reasoning about practical matters, to deliberate and to reason about the particular means for obtaining its end. The deliberate volition of the will is then free from being committed to any particular good or any particular means. When the practical intellect makes an assessment of the alternatives and supplies a rationale for each, Thomas would say that the will is free to act or not act, or is free to further consider what is said in front of it and or to, to command the intellect to think about, think about it further, to reason further, to deliberate some more, or even to think about something altogether different. Of course, it is also, the will is also free to accept reasons assessment straight away and to choose from among the alternatives accordingly. And here's the interesting thing. Although the will cannot act contrary to the last judgment of the practical intellect, where the the intellect lands in the final analysis of things uh, um, leading uh, uh, there into the, the actual choice, The interesting thing is that although the will cannot act contrary to the last judgment of the practical intellect, it is not necessarily compelled to follow its every or its first or its second or third judgment. It can, the will can, and often does send the practical intellect into further deliberation until it has a satisfying reason for settling upon the alternative it at that moment desires most. In the end, the will is determined by the last practical judgment of the intellect, but, and it is a big but, the last judgment of the practical intellect is simultaneously determined to be its last and final judgment of deliberation by the will's free exercise of its own power of choice. We can try to illustrate this very briefly Um, remembering that the will is free as it concerns the particulars to will not will or will otherwise now let's say let's say that your intellect presents a, a a piece of chocolate cake to your will if we can put it that thinking in terms of the intellect and the will right your intellect presents a piece of chocolate cake to your will as a particular good in other words that it is desirable your will then may command the intellect to deliberate over whether you should eat the cake or not eat the cake, or even put the matter of eating the cake and, or eating it all entirely aside and out of your mind. And let's say that the, that the reason's first judgment is that you, you're on a diet, right? And therefore you should not eat this cake. It is, a, it is a good, it's a pleasurable good, but for other reasons, reasons of your diet, it may, not be, it may be perceived even as a not good at that time, at that moment. But in that moment, you, you really desire the good of the pleasure of eating it, and so your will sends your reason back into deliberation to find, perchance, a, a satisfying rationale for eating the cake anyway. Right? Maybe you find good reason. Maybe you find good reason. It's, it's, it's a special occasion. It's your, your daughter's wedding or, or, or so on. Or maybe, so you can justify breaking, for good reason, breaking your, your diet. Or maybe you come up with a poor reason, because that's possible too, that proves to be against your better judgment. We'll look at that again um, in, our fourth, uh, in our very final lecture. In any, in any event, in the end, it is the will that ends the deliberation of the intellect and determines what shall be its last practical judgment, whether it be to eat or not eat or otherwise. In other words, the will is always determined by the last judgment of the practical intellect. It cannot act without reason. It, it can act against better judgment of reason, but it cannot act without reason intellect without reason. But the last judgment of the practical intellect is simultaneously determined to be its last judgment when the will puts an end to its deliberation because one or another particular um, object and, and the reasoning for its desirability sufficiently appeals to the rational appetite, satisfying it in the here and in the now. And in this way, In this way, what we do can always be traced back to what we are thinking, though perhaps not always or necessarily to the best of our thinking. So, as we shall see, it is for this reason that Thomas does not fit squarely into an intellectualist or a voluntarist camp. The proper act of free will is freedom of choice. Freedom of choice, which is the genuine ability to will, not will, or will otherwise. But according to Thomas, in the end, the very act of choosing is itself a joint act of both the intellect and the free will, the cognitive power and the appetitive power. In every free act of choice, The free will is determined by the practical reasoning of the intellect and the last and final judgment of the practical intellect is simultaneously determined by the free and spontaneous choice of free will. The intellect enjoys a primacy of knowledge and rationality that the will itself does not have. And the will enjoys a primacy of election and volition that the intellect itself does not have. As one author says, yet both powers are required for the liberum arbitrium, the free choice, the act of free choice or deliberated reason, which is the basis of human liberty, a liberty that is terminated cognitively by the last practical judgment of the intellect and appetitively by the free and spontaneous choice of the will. According to Thomas, Free choice is itself the concurrence of these two things. Thank you.